Peace and Black Power family. This is your Raheem Shabazz, and we are here for another episode of Necessary Blackness podcast. And today, I have a special guest in the building, but I am here. Joining me is my lovely co-host, Marcy Lee. She's in the building. And today, we have our guest, and his name is Owali Africa. And he is a Garveyite and a grassroots institutional builder with over 15 years of student and community organizing experience. Omali Wally has served the local Philadelphia community in a variety of roles. <laughs> I'm sorry, brother. I am. Met- it's all good, bro. Give, give, me the all right good. Pronunci- give me the right pronunciation of your name. Is Omawale. Omawale. Omawale, yep. Omawale, I got you. All right. And he's from the Philadelphia area, ladies and gentlemen, and he has an extensive background working as a community organizer in the Philadelphia area. He's also a filmmaker. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome him to the Necessary Blackness podcast. How are you, my brother? I'm doing good, Brother Raheem. Peace to you and to your lovely uh, co-host, Sister Marcy. All right. Now, I watched your documentary, and um, I, I must say that it is definitely um, something that will resonate with viewers because of subject matter and the day and the time that we are living in. I want you to uh, briefly tell um, the listening audience the name of your documentary and a brief synopsis about it. Absolutely. Um, so the name of the documentary is The Un-American Dilemma, uh, The Question of Black Loyalty During the 2020 Election. Um, and I think you hit the nail uh, on the head, right? We created this project as a time capsule. Um, we wanted to capture a significant moment in time uh, in the political life of Black America. Um, so yeah. at the 2020 election, <clears throat> I would argue that the 2020 election is perhaps the most um, divided moment politically, you know, in the history of Black America, you know, in terms of uh, some of the language that we've seen um, used, you know, by Black people in reference to other Black people, um, words such as, you know, traitor, uh, you know, cultural traitor, you know, race traitor, you know, th- these are the types of, you know, words that were used to, to define, you know, Black folks, you know, who said that they didn't want to vote in the 2020 election, um, or who said that they wouldn't support Joe Biden. Um, so for me, I just felt that, you know, th- that type of, of, of language, you know, evidence a short-sightedness, kind of like in our political memory. So I wanted to create a project that would help to um, historicize the discussion so that we could make better sense of this moment that we're in at right now. So you, um, in the documentary, which was phenomenal, it was Thank a, you. A, a great watch. You start off kind of talking about how you were on the campaign for Joe Biden, like you were with Joe Biden. And then some things happened, which seems like you said, well, your words were the honeymoon was over, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about what Michael Cord said that struck a nerve with you and made you have this kind of transformation? Okay, so to to clarify, I, I was never with um, uh, Joe Biden at all. So during, during, yeah, during, during the 2016 uh, presidential campaign, I was a supporter of, of Bernie Sanders. Um, and during that campaign, I, I had created a grassroots political education initiative uh, that went by the name of Amplify the Hood. Um, and the reason why I created it was because when I was paying attention to the Democratic primary, I noticed that none of the issues that were impacting our community were being discussed, right? So what I did was um, using that campaign, you know, I created an acronym to engage a discussion with influences in our community, such as Jay Morrison, uh, Dr. Cornell West, and some very notable people in Philly. Uh, And the acronym that we used was called MUTE. Um, The M stood for mass incarceration, the U stood for unemployment, uh, the T stood for uh, transitioning neighborhoods, meaning gentrification, and the E stood for economic opportunity. 
So use, using that, that acronym, we're having discussions around, you know, what politics should mean for our community and which of the candidates that, that, that we felt at the time would better, you know, address those particular things, right? So I was making that argument, um, or I put that there in reference to the claim that was being made by, you know, folks such as Karen Hunter, who stated that, you know, people in, in Black society who don't vote or who said they were not going to vote, the chances are they've never voted before and they don't participate anyway. So she was saying that to say that, you know, those of us who are using our voice to say that we won't vote, you know, our voices shouldn't be heard because we don't participate. So I put that there just to show that, hey, I actually have a history of participating, of organizing, of, you know, getting our people registered to vote. Um, I stated like myself, like most people in our community, you know, I came into, or, or in my peer group, right, my age range, I came into politics in 2008 uh, with Barack Obama. You know, I was very excited about Obama's candidacy. That's what I referred to as my political honeymoon period. But that political awakening um, for me, um, a, a big, I guess, uh, catalyst was the murders of, you know, Philando Castile um, and Alton Sterling. And I talk about that in the documentary, how I experienced somewhat of an awakening and it sent me in a different direction politically to where I, I arrived in 2020, where I'm making the statement that I won't vote and you shouldn't either. Right. So that's that's the kind of like the, the, the truncated version of, of, of the path that was traveled to get to what I, re, I refer to as uh, the road to becoming a political heretic. Mm. There was a right, that really was an eye opener for me because it was information that it was the first time I heard about it and I was really surprised because I felt like I knew everything about uh, W.E.B. DeBose, right? Mm -hmm. And you um, brought up about how he was able to rally 500,000 individuals to vote for uh, Woodrow Wilson, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, Woodrow Wilson was, I think he was like the, um, the first Democrat, right? That blacks went and put their vote behind because prior to that, we always voted for Republicans. Yep. So he was the catalyst that made blacks started going to the Democratic Party. In return, mm -hmm. uh, President uh, Woodson, he um, he was a, a KKK sympathizer, and um, he was the one that actually showed uh, Birth of a Nation, that Ku Klux Klan movie at the White House. And he did some other horrible things and I was like, wow, I didn't, I didn't know that. And then after that, um, he released a speech, um, W.B. DeBose, where he said that he will not vote. And yeah. people talk about that. Like, he is one of our greatest political minds that come out of the Pan-African movement that said that he would not vote. And he had every right to because he brought 500,000 people to this party and... Um, in return, they showed the Ku Klux Klan movie. So yeah, that's a little bit about um, W.E.B. DeBose and, and his um, change being um, a supporter of the Democrats and to him wanting people not to vote. Absolutely. Um, so during the documentary, I actually I walked through at a very high level um, the political evolution of W.E.B. DeBose from the period of 1899 all the way up until 1956. Um, but in 1913, or, or during the 1912 election, um, Du Bois effectively rallied for Woodrow Wilson in the Black community uh, with the thinking that although, you know, Woodrow Wilson was a Southerner, you know, he was the, the, the president of Princeton, Uni Princeton University, so Du Bois thought him to be, you know, a reasonable man, someone who would perhaps be refined or, you know, would bend to the, to the will of intelligence. Um, but Du Bois found out very soon after that that would not be the case. You know, following year of uh, of Wilson's election, Du Bois writes a public letter uh, to Wilson and says, "Hey, you know, during your candidacy, you know, I got over five hundred thousand black you know people to come out and cast their votes for you. And if it had not been for us voting for you, 
you wouldn't be in, in, in the White House, essentially, is the argument that the voice is making. So he's saying that I, I hope you will do right by us and remember the Negro as your friend, you know, during your presidency. Um, and what black people got in return, you know, for that loyalty uh, that they showed to Wilson and to the Democratic Party was we got Jim Crow uh, in the White House, right? Um, uh, uh, Wilson was the, the president that ushered in, you know, the Jim Crow laws or federal apartheid laws into the federal government. Um, we got a um, mainstreaming of the KKK um, and black people during uh, that candidacy uh, underwent some of the most harshest conditions, you know, in, in this country, everything from uh, Red Summer, you know, all of like the lynching, all of this is all happening uh, under Wilson. So what Du Bois does in 1956 is he recounts each of his presidential picks over the past, I guess, 11 presidents and basically states what his justification was for each of the presidents that he selected to, until he got to the point in 1956 where he said he won't vote. Right. So he was making the argument that I'm someone over the past, you know, 50 years, I've always tried to take the, the lesser of two evils. Um, but I recognize today that there is no two evils. There is only one evil. And he states that, you know, when I give black people, when I tell black people not to vote, he says, is this a council of despair? He says, no, this is dogged hope. This is hope that if enough black people wake up and realize that the system is rigged against them and that democracy doesn't actually exist in this country, right, at the point when we start to realize that this country is illegitimate, then maybe black people will do what they need to do to get our political goods met for ourselves, right? So, and, and it's funny because in 1956, Du Bois writes in the essay, and you can find this, this, um, this essay um, online. It was written for Nation Magazine in 1956. It's called Why I Won't Vote. But he says that, um, you know, me, he says in, in the essay, he says, me telling people not to vote is not due to some sly wink from Khrushchev. And what he's stating there, because Khrushchev at the time was the president of the USSR, meaning modern day Russia. So just like today in our elections, you know, they say that, you know, black people are being influenced by, you know, the Russians. Well, this is an argument that has been being made for the past 100 years. In 1919, they were saying the Negroes are seeing red. Right, the Russians are influencing Negroes to be seditious. So Du Bois stated that in 1956, he said, no, I'm not telling black people not to vote because Khrushchev or the Russians told me to say this, right? So when we hear these things being played out in our elections today or in our political processes today, there's a long history to some of these arguments that a lot of us just don't understand, which is why I felt it was necessary um, to put all that history in the documentary. Similar, and, and this, the same year that he releases the essay, um, I will quote 1956, this is the same year that Paul Robeson is called before the House on Un-American Activities, right, where they threaten, you know, to basically jail Robeson as a traitor, uh, as giving uh, material aid to other states, you know what I mean? So, and we, we know what happened to Robeson as a result of that, right, as a result of his political stand, that he took on behalf of black people. He got MK altered, he got tortured, um, and he died a withered old man by himself in Philadelphia as a result of, of the political stance that he took for our people. For me, I take it very personal to answer your question about Michael Cord. I take it very personal, right, when someone says that someone in black America is a traitor because of the political stance that we've taken. When Malcolm X was called un-American, right? Garvey un-American, Du Bois was called un-American. Harriet Tubman, Nat Turner, these were all, they all would have been called un-American. So for somebody in, in 2020 to say that radical pol politics are seditious, and you're saying this with a picture of Malcolm X over your right shoulder, for me, that, that just couldn't stand. So I had to say something about it. Yeah, there were so many points that you made in the documentary. And like Raheem, um, the information that you shared about um, Du Bois was ph phenomenal. I mean, it was, it was eye-opening. And there was something that you said about him where he, he stated that through education, he thought that he could change white people. And he did an about face in regards to that. Do you think that he gave up on black people um, like their ability to rise to the occasion that he wanted when he left and said, 
he wasn't going to vote again. Uh, uh, du, Bois, du Bois never gave up on Black people. Um, at, at the time when Du Bois left the country, you have to remember that this is during the time of you know the Cold War, but this is also during the time when African nationalism is on the rise on the African continent. There's all this revolutionary energy. So Du Bois had always saw Black people in America as the vanguard for the global Black movement, but he felt as though Black people in the 1950s in America had become American. You know, we didn't want to be associated with anything African. We didn't want to be associated with anything revolutionary. Um, so all of the civil rights movement turned their back on Du Bois. Uh, same thing with Robeson. They called they called Robeson um, a law shepherd, and they sided with the empire right against their people, both domestically um, and internationally. Uh, but what's uh, what's very important, and I don't want to lose my thought here because uh, there's something I want to drive home here. So Du Bois comes to this realization that white people can't be educated out of their racism in the middle of the uh, Great Depression after attempting for 30 years to educate white people so that white people would act on behalf of uh, black people. But you have to remember the history. Du Bois rises to prominence when he attacks uh, Booker T. Washington. Because what Booker T. Washington did was from the period of 1865 to 1895, Frederick Douglass was the black voice essentially that spoke for black America. He was our national spokesperson. And Frederick Douglass had this idea that you could persuade white people, meaning to educate and or influence them, most likely at that time it was morally, right, moral persuasion, that we could persuade them to do right by us as black people in this country. So when, when Frederick Douglass dies in 1895, seven months after his death, Booker T. Washington gives a speech where he goes in a different direction. He says, he says to black people, cast down your buckets where you are, meaning take your reality into your own hands. Do what you need to do to feed yourself, to do for self, to clothe for self in order to protect yourself in this racist society, right? So when, when Douglass says that, the black elite in our community, they get upset. Because them, they saw themselves making progress into becoming white, ultimately. But the masses of black people weren't making any um, racial progress. So essentially, mind you, you have those 30 years from 1865 to 1895 where Douglas is leading us and he's attempting uh, to persuade white people. Du, Bo uh, du Bois knocks Booker T. Washington kind of like out the spotlight and he becomes the co-leader with Booker T. Washington. And then Du Bois attempts for another 30 years from 1903 till about 1933 to educate white people only to realize like, oh shit, Booker T. Washington was actually right. And he attempts to uh, do this about face, but at that point um, it was too late. But I, I wanted to put that in the documentary because when we look today, we see the same thing happening. Um, I, I was probably one of the first people that was critical of Yvette Carnell and Tone Talks for their argument that, you know, they're making this argument with the ADOS movement that white people didn't have the data. And because white people didn't have the data, they couldn't do right by, by black people. So black people need to create an identity for themselves so that white people can see us in the data. And once they have the data, they can give us reparations or some type of redress. And I said, to make that argument means that you haven't been studying the history because there's hmm. been spent 60 and 70 years attempting to educate white people and to provide them the data only to realize that, oh, white people already know. And they have a project and that project for us is removal and or extermination, whatever you want to call it. And that's what I'm pointing to in the documentary. I'm saying to black people like, hey, the forced migration and the economic desperation that you're seeing in our community is taking us to a place that we won't be able to survive in this country. And if the black elite is telling you to vote for somebody who's not even going to address your material conditions or address the crisis that's playing out in your community, then that person is a traitor because that person is basically telling you to march to your graveyard silently. And, and I, I couldn't let that stand. So this was me trying to you know raise the alarm or ring the bell to say, yo, like the boy said in 56, no, we don't need to vote. We need to figure out a way to get our needs met. Vote 
is not doing it. And for me, the only way for us to do that is by organizing at the grassroots level to really bring power to bear on this system in the way that's not controlled by this system. That's my, my vision. Speaking of raising the alarm, when we go back and look at what uh, the both said, the both said about not voting, right? And then we look at, you know, the situation because he rallied 500,000 people and basically the president showed them who he was by filming, um, showing the film with the Ku Klux Klan, right? And then we look at today, black people uh, are freezing that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is in office and not even before he takes his first day in office, his top cabinet people doesn't reflect the people that was on the ground and that actually put him in there. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's very funny. Over this past week, especially since Barack Obama basically came out and started oh, to... Hold up one minute. Hold up one minute. All right, go again because it was a little staticky. Okay. okay. Am I clear now? Yeah, you good. All right, no. I was saying... um. I'm glad you brought that up because there's been a, a, a significant awakening happening amongst uh, progressives and black people that rallied in support of, of Joe Biden um, and Kamala Harris during this particular campaign, right? So we saw um, uh, Rep Representative Clyburn already come out and you know he's making the statement that, hey, you know, black people won this thing for you, like, but we're not represented you know, in your cabinet. Um, we saw uh, people who really went the bat for Joe Biden and they're getting uh, kind of like snubbed and they aren't, they aren't getting the positions, they aren't getting the tokens that they were um, expecting to receive as a result of their, you know, support and, and, and loyalty. And Biden is just showing, showing them, you know, who he is. Now, these are people who, uh, you know, there was a sister, I think her name is Latasha Brown. She runs the, um, Black Voters Matter project. Yeah, and yeah, so yes, yesterday on Twitter, uh, she came out and she says, I'm starting to realize that the Democrats don't care about black people. They only care about us as long as we remain silent and we keep behaving and it keeps them in power. So I said to myself, it's mighty convenient for you to come to this realization after you coerce black people into voting against their interests, after you've you know told black people to shut up and, buy, uh, and vote, um, after you told black people to be silent and don't ask for anything in exchange for your vote, you know everybody was up in arms because Ice Cube, you know, considered to be politically naive or whatever you want, but the fact that he said I'm going to put together a contract and I'm going to go and talk to both parties, everybody was up in arms about that. Nobody was willing to ask of Joe Biden anything. And as a result, we didn't ask for anything. He didn't promise anything. And now he's not doing anything. Um, and those of us who said that we weren't going to vote without any, um, you know, policy or whatever, like we already knew that this would be the case. But now what's happening is these folks are all trying to save face now because Barack Obama has come out this week and now he's telling people that, hey, the language that you're using about your death is alienating white voters. So you need to change the language. Don't say defund the police, you know, say other things. You need to die a little bit nicer. You know what I mean? You need to be a, a bit more silent in your death because your death and the language that you're, you're using to communicate about your death is uncomfortable. It's making us uncomfortable. So now all the black people are looking like, what are they talking about? Do they, do they not see that black people just deliver for them? And now, Everybody's trying to save face because over these next four years, the party, the Democratic Party, because I'm not a part of it, so I don't want to call it the party. The Democratic Party is going to further distance itself away from uh, radical language or any radical policies that are meant to address the things that are happening in our community. So the so-called radicals or leftists in the party, they're all going to get isolated and they're going to bring in all of the black people who are technically conservative to basically be the defense against the black community when the black community comes banging on the doors asking for food, asking for housing and asking for protection, right? When we go to ask for those things, it's going to be our people at the door to meet us and say, turn around, change happening. 
Y'all go back, you know, and make sure y'all go vote in the midterm election and make sure y'all vote in January so that we can win the Senate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that was crazy. Like you said a lot. And I had I had a question, but before that question, you brought up Ice Cube. Mm-hmm. And the thing I didn't understand, especially with Michael Cord and others labeling him as a traitor, I didn't understand it. Was it because he was asking the oppose their idea of the opposing party um taking a meeting with him like why do you think he was labeled a traitor i think that he was labeled a traitor because the black elite and black progressives know that if the democratic party attempts to do anything for black people then that's going to be a death sentence for the democratic party right the democratic party cannot forth any legislation that will specifically be targeted for black people. Because if they attempt to do that, history shows that their white voter base is going to leave the party and vote red. We saw that, you know, in the 60s where white America perceived that, you know, Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, the Civil Rights Bill, all this legislation was for black people. And the the white people who were in the Democratic Party left that party and went Republican to the point that uh, Nixon said in 70, hey, we need a period of benign neglect. Let's stop talking about like all this black stuff. Let's focus on the tokens who are doing well. Well, look, we got all this new black representation. Look at all these black mayors. Hey, we even got black athletes and entertainers and we got Bill Cosby. Let's focus on that. Let's focus on the Huxtables while there's a crack epidemic in America, Mm -hmm. right? So at the time when black America is suffering at its worst, this nation is showing the rest of the world Bill Cosby. People in Africa, the Bahamas, when they look at black people in America, they're like, oh man, black people are living like Bill Cosby, but we're really suffering. And then they pull a doozy on us, right? So after they, after they get the world um, prepared to looking at us as Bill Cosby, they turn the camera and then they show the results of the crack epidemic. So they show the black people shooting each other. They show the violence and the drugs. And they say, see, we tried to do for those black people, but look what they do to themselves. We did. We spent all this money to fix it, and look how they act. This is who they are. So now everybody is looking like, yeah, it's black people's fault that they, they live in the way that they live in in America. And and let me to answer your original question because I don't want to go off of that. You you the, to answer that question, I would state that the people who are calling Ice Cube a traitor are calling him a traitor because he's asking for something from the Democratic Party, specifically for Black people. And they know that it's not possible for the Democratic Party to do that and win an election. So as a result, default, by asking, he's hurting the Democratic Party. So they're saying, hey, Ice Cube, you don't need to be asking because that's going to lend to voter suppression. Because Black people who are listening to you ask these questions, they're going to start saying, well, shit, if you ain't doing nothing for me, then I'm not going to vote, right? So that's going to lend to voter suppression because you're asking. But not only that, if the Democrats commit to giving you something, that's going to be a death knell in their coffin. So people are damned when they vote because you're voting. You're stuck between two parties, the Republicans and the Democrats. The Republicans aren't going to do anything, and the Democrats can't do anything for you. So this is the position that you find yourself locked in. Well, not only, I just wanted to add, because with Biden, not only is it between the Republicans and the Democrats, in in Biden's case, I think it was between him being able to do something and not, because if he did something, the white majority that was for Biden would not have felt comfortable supporting him. Not true indeed. And that's what it comes down to. That's why you have Kamala Harris that says, I'm not going to do anything specifically for black people, right? Because they understand that to do something specifically for black people is uh, is a political non-starter. Their white base is going to leave the party and they are always concerned about their white voter base. Let let me interject, right? Um, Let me just give a, a hypothetical situation. Now, you said that if the Democrats did anything specifically for blacks, that would have been the nail in the coffin, right? When everything was going on, I was saying, you know what? If Trump was smart, he would just do something for blacks. And I didn't understand that. And and you just said in your argument that um, 
the uh, Democrats, that would have been a nail in their coffin. So they 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 would have lose their uh, voters base, and the Republicans is just not going to do that. Do you think that that could have been a strategic tactic in order for them to win the White House? Say, listen, we got to do something specifically for blacks. You think that would have hurt them um, with their voter base if they would have did, even if it was just something, not not no no uh, 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 benign neglect, but something like tangible for blacks. You don't think that would have? Yeah, I think I think that perhaps um, I think that. It's not even in a weird way. If you understand the way political science works or political theater works, um, Trump would have been perhaps in a better position to do something for black people and not lose voters than any Democratic candidate would. Because I was Trump, because Trump Trump is so clearly racist that like it's like um it's like um when when uh when Nixon um re-entered into communication with uh hold on one minute. Hold on one minute. Oh, I'm, I'm on here. Are you hearing the static that I'm hearing? You're not hearing that on your hand? No. Oh, all right. Get, get it, brother. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was saying it's like when, when Nixon uh, normalized relations with China between the U.S. and China using ping pong uh, diplomacy, right? The argument was made that it was only Nixon who could do that because Nixon was so clearly anti-China. Right. So because he was so anti-China, he was the only president who could normalize relationships with China. So the same thing with Trump, because Trump is such like a virulent racist, he's perhaps the only white Republican who could potentially give something politically to black people without white racists leaving the party. Or do you think it's just because it's Trump? And he seems to be able to do whatever he want to do without any kind of like recourse. Like he's changed the game of the political um, landscape. You know what I'm saying? Like it seems like he can do whatever, and people be like, ah, who cares? You know, we still rolling with him. Why you think well, he didn't do it? Why you so, think he didn't do it to solidify his place and, and to be the next pres to to get a uh, second term as president? I mean, because to be to be fair, I, I think that when people are strategizing, it's like when you're in the negotiation, right? If if I have five thousand to spend, I'm going to say I'll give you two thousand to see what you come back with, right? You you don't know where my ceiling is. The other the other side doesn't know where, where my ceiling is in negotiation, right? So I'm trying to win, and they're trying to win. So I think with Trump. He's trying to figure out where the ceiling is for Black America. Like, what can I signal to them that's a bit more, you know, than what the Democrats has have given them quickly, but not like I'm not trying to give away the house, essentially, right? Because Black people are not an organized block, so we don't we don't exercise um, political power. And plus, he's probably looking at Black people like, I mean, they take nothing year after year from the Democrats anyway. So why do I have to offer? you know, the house, the car, and the whole neighborhood. Like, they already give away their vote for nothing, so maybe I can give them a little bit and see if they'll bite on it. You know, and some Black people didn't bite, but then it all comes down to, even if he was to do it, like, what does that then look like legislatively, right? Because the reality, and, and this, this is a stark reality that a lot of people are, are picking up on, the conditions in Black America, right? I'm talking about the Black masses, not Black people who are the outliers, but the Black masses. The conditions have deteriorated so greatly that the only thing that can truly impact, you know, and, and, and stop the bleeding in terms of the forced migration and the economic devastation is some type of mass redistribution of wealth right? via either reparations or some type of socialist transformation. Now, when you understand that there's no way that will ever happen through the vote, right? When you understand that, hey, the only way for me to live in this country is for one of these two things to occur. And neither of these things will ever occur via electoral politics. Then I have to start using my brain and my ingenuity to figure out how do I then make those things occur? What other means do I have at my disposal for my survival? And that's what I'm trying to get us to... to to, to understand that voting is just like it's keeping us doing busy work and neglecting the real big work that we have to do. Right. There, there is there is no path electorally 
to get the things that Black America requires to survive as an entity in this nation. The only thing that electoral politics does, and this is what um, this is what the Black elite like to argue, it's pain reduction, right? It's the no pain. You know, Black people, you know, it takes a little bit of the pressure off, right? But the reality is the Black elite don't care about pain reduction. What they care about is uh, it's gain protection, meaning the gains that they have been able to make, they don't want to lose those gains. And if your Black ass don't show up and vote, then it puts their gains, their political and economic gains that they have made, it puts them in jeopardy. So they try to make it seem like their vote is to protect you as harm reduction. No, it's not harm reduction. It's gain protection. And, and they don't want to be honest about that. Yeah, you talk a lot. Um, well, not a lot, but significantly about corrupt, black corrupt um, politicians and the black elite. You mentioned black representation over black power as well. And what do you think that it would take for the black community um, to look past what I would consider tokenism? Like when you think you mentioned LeBron James and, you know, other celebrities who always come out to, you know, bring the herd, as you say, to the, the, the voting ballot. Um, what do you think it would take for the black communities to delink, as you say? in your um, documentary um, from the election process as we know it today? Uh, to, be, to be very blunt, um, I don't think that a volunteer delinking in mass is ever going to um, occur because black people's, uh, like we're dependent upon this nation and it's, uh, electoral system for, you know, the, the little food, clothing, shelter that we that we do get. The argument that I'm making is that the status quo, even the little crumbs that we get at this moment, is not sustainable. This whole apparatus that this nation is built upon is not sustainable. So for those of us who understand that and we have the foresight to see what's coming down the road, then we need to do what we need to do to delink because in a situation of economic collapse or you know political unrest that is you know where you see political violence acted out at all levels mm -hmm. then we have to ask their, themselves start asking ourselves the hard question are we pre prepared to survive in that type of environment and if not what type of people do we need to be to prepare ourselves to survive in that type of environment so when i'm talking organizing, it's always around our basic needs, right? Food, clothing, shelter, protection, safety. Those are your basic needs. This government is not meeting those needs for us. If it was, we wouldn't have homeless encampments in Philadelphia. You know, with COVID, COVID is just exacerbated with homelessness, um, the starving children in the so-called first world nation. You have Black people who are out of work, People always talk about, um, you know, in school, economics was my initial, my initial um, minor, but I ended up minoring in entrepreneurship and majoring in accounting. But people always talk about the unemployment rate. What they don't realize is how the unemployment rate is calculated. After a certain period of time where you have not been looking for work or you've been out of work, you're no longer counted in the unemployment rate. So... People, they'll say, uh, you know, the black employment is 20% or something like that. It's really much higher than that because they're not counting the people who are not actively looking. So all of the, like the brothers that we see, you know, standing around hustling or doing what they, whatever, whatever, they're not even counted in the number. They, they don't count as an entity in this number. So that means that when they're trying to address employment in our community, they're not even addressing or our entire community. They're only trying to address it for those who are actively looking, right? For those who see a place in the economy for them. And the reality is as time goes on and as the economy transforms and becomes you know, more automated, there's not gonna be a place not only for black people, but for the large majority of people, right? So when this starts to happen, right? With these changes that are coming, like why aren't we talking about this? Why aren't we talking about the crisis and the reason why the Democratic Party isn't talking about it, because they can't do anything about it. But those who consider us themselves to be political leaders of black people, 
like it should be considered treacherous for them to know that this is coming down the road us and they are not even saying anything about it. They're telling us to go vote. For me, that that that's why this documentary exists. All right, what I want to do real quick, because we got a lot of people that um I don't know if y'all seeing these comments. I'm gonna read some of these comments, and then the last one is an actual question I want you to answer. All right, we got uh Monique Two C. She says Barry set the stage on the Breakfast Club for Kamami and Sloppy Joe to once again let us down by not doing anything specific for Black folks. What's new? They never do. They never will. We need to exit that plantation. She goes on to say, these white supremacists aren't going to do anything for us. We need to stop looking at them like white Jesus. They ain't saving us. They are equally racist. Laugh out loud. This was fun. Peace. And then someone else said, uh, Pan-Africanism or Parish, RBG flag, uh, or Garveyism, race first. But here's the question, right? David Wilson said, why did every black prosperous town, oh, why did every black prosperous time W.E.D. the both get destroyed? Is there a correlation or simply coincidence? I, I didn't question. hear the question. I was breaking, I, oh. I guess my Wi-Fi. Oh, you hear me now? We got to get a better connection. It's sounding like Sprint. Do you hear me now? <laughs> no, he said something about his Wi-Fi, so he's probably trying to correct uh, me. Can y'all hear me? I, yeah, yeah, we hear you. Yeah, the Wi-Fi in the hotel was, was just... David Wilson, if you can, uh, Williamson, if you can, can you please uh, write your question again? Um, Because you got one word in there that's throwing everything off. It says prosperous town or prosperous time. I'm trying to figure out what you're trying to say. But um, Marcy Lee, you want to um, actually? Yeah. Well, in the meantime, while we wait for that, I wanted to, you gave your perspective on what it would take to kind of de-link. But I'm wondering if, because there's a term that you use called economic starvation. Mm -hmm. And we all can, you know, gather what that means. Would it take the same thing or are these two different things? Like, because I'm thinking it would take the same effort um, to tackle these two issues. Uh, and I'm talking about between de-leaking from the, the process and also um, solving the or solving the problem of economic starvation. Yeah, I, I would argue that it's going you. Yes, it, it does, right? Because delinking de um, or, or basically reaching the conclusion that the system is illegitimate, so your participation in it is only helping to maintain it. Um, I think that that's an important conclusion to reach because ultimately what's going to be required for us collectively to get our needs met. Um, and this is going to, you know, because we exist within a global capitalist economy, right? Black people who were enslaved, you know, throughout the diaspora, I would argue that we're probably at the forefront, you know, in terms of like this economic starvation process or this economic uselessness process. But it's not just going to happen to us. It's going to happen to um, really all people under under the system, except like a, a select few. Um, that being said, the only way that this can be changed is through some type of revolutionary struggle. Like the reality is. Revolutionary struggle comes. The reason why people don't want to entertain these conversations, and one of my elders said this to me, he said, the reason why people don't want to entertain these conversations is because repression works, right? People know that to fight back, to resist, to struggle means that you're going to be met with resistance. And depending upon the level to which your resistance reaches, your enemy and or the state is going to rise its resistance, right, or its repression to an equal or higher level to maintain um, the current situation. So what I'm what I'm essentially stating is that as the political apparatus on the, the Western world, the United States is currently constructed, um, the crises that I'm speaking to cannot be solved 
under it can it can't be solved by the same conditions that produced it, right? You this system essentially has to be um right. Yes. <laughs> so are you saying like on the level of something like Shay's rebellion or like just something just a violent revolution? No, that's not what I'm that's not and that's not what I'm arguing for. Um because you have to recognize um I don't. I don't want to necessarily get into into tactics in terms of revolution. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? So I don't want to. The internet. I, I, I perfectly. I, yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't want to get into tactics. But what I'm saying is, yes, you you need a full transformation. You need full structural change, complete structural change, in order to get our needs met. And that structural change, or Full transformation will never come via the vote. Period. So the bullet, and we already gave, we already gave him the ballot, so you know what's next. But um, the brother David Wilson, Williamson, I don't want to mispronounce his name. Um, he came back, and um, this is his question. He said, "Why did every black prosperous town?" that W.E. DeVos visit get destroyed? Is there a correlation or simply coincidence? Every t every black town he uh, visited got destroyed? Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know that to be true. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if that speculation would be useful. <laughs> you know, I don't know if that speculation, meaning, it's meaning not, not far-fetched, you know? Yeah, no, what I'm saying is in terms of, one, I'm saying I don't know that to be true. Yeah. But I'm saying in terms of us meeting uh, the requirements that need to be met today, I don't know if the speculation on, you know, Du Bois visiting towns and them being destroyed is any gives us any benefit. You know what I mean? Like, I hear you. I hear you. All right. Hold on. I think. Let me see. Uh, uh, yeah, that's it. And real quickly, I want to give a shout out to the guard, Kareem Johnson. He's in the building, man. He's one of our um big supporters. So, um, in closing, um, Marcy Lee, you want to close it out? You had another question. I do have one more question, and I'm gonna read it because it's it's kind of lengthy. It's not too lengthy. Okay, okay. At the end of your documentary, you close by making a powerful statement. I would not reveal what you say for those who have not yet seen the documentary, but do you believe that the choice between Trump and Biden is un-American or the choice between these two parties is un-American? That's a good question. Yeah, so the, the, the un-American dilemma um, doesn't, doesn't hinge upon a choice between Democrat or Republican. It doesn't hinge upon a choice between um, Biden or Trump, right? We start the documentary off, right? When the title sequence comes on, you hear Malcolm in the background where he says, I'm not a Democrat nor a Republican. I'm not even an American and got sense enough to know it, mm. right? Un-American dilemma is black people who recognize that I'm not Democrat, Republican, and or American. And the things that I need to do in order to have my needs met for survival will be considered un-American, will be considered seditious. But the reason why it's a dilemma, you know, is because essentially what's good for me is bad for America. And what's bad for America is good for and it sounds like we have this inverse relationship. The only time that gets confused is when people, black people start to think that they are American. So then black people start to think that what's good for America is good for them. You know what? You don't hear, you start to hear black people start talking about our country, our constitution, our courts. We need to save our nation. Malcolm said that you had these types of Negroes on the plantation. He said when the plantation was on fire or when the master was sick, you would have the Negroes and say, what's the matter, boss? We sick? <laughs> we sick is the same thing as our country, our nation. So what I'm saying is 
The un-American dilemma is understanding that what's good for America is bad for black people. But the only only time black people get that confused is when they think that they are American. I'm saying you don't understand how dope that explanation was. Because at first, you know, when I when I, you know, with this question, I didn't go there. But then when you connected it, it also reminded me of um, Neely Fuller Jr. Because he makes a similar um, argument. So that was dope. Um, so I want to thank you for coming on. I appreciate you. I want to thank our listeners, our viewers um, for joining us today. And uh, we want to welcome you all back to our next podcast. Raheem, is that it? No, 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 that's not it. That's not you it. You just I told me to close it out. Yeah, well, with the question, with the question, but now that he says that, right, I got one more question. I'm going to ask Okay. So I'm going to play devil's advocate, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I perfectly understand what you're saying about when people are saying our country. But listen, as long as we pay taxes, this is our damn country. Our, our ancestors died. You know, many of our, our um, ancestors fought in the war. You know, we got people amongst us that that are war veterans. So to just say, can I, can I, can I, this, can I respond to your first comment? Before you go? I didn't finish yet. Okay, because so, okay, I have to, I have to, because I hear I hear this argument all the time. Okay, good. No, yes. the, I hear the argument about taxes all the time, and as somebody who's a student of struggle and a student of history, you have to understand the role that taxes play. Um, and a colony, the role that taxes play in an empire. So let me just give you a quick history lesson. When European nations conquered other people on their land, they forced those people to pay them taxes, right? For example, they, and if you're from the streets, you know, um, you're familiar with how extortion looks, right? Yeah. So what Europeans would go in and do, they would say, hey, the French are over there. The Germans are over here. We, we the British. If you sign a treaty of protection with a, with us, we'll make sure that the French and the Germans don't come in and rape your land and hurt your people. And if you don't sign it, then all of us are going to come in and hurt your people and just do what we want. So after the people have been defeated, they'll say, okay, I'm going to sign this law of protection. Once you sign this law of protection, meaning you become a subject or a vassal of this gangster nation, you have to pay that nation taxes. And various means, right? So on the continent, they have what's referred to as a hut tax. Basically, anybody who lives on the land has to pay a tax for their house to have a house on the land. And how do you pay a tax? Well, the Europeans are going to tell you, you have to pay it to me and this means. So you got to pay it to me in currency. Okay, well, how do I get the currency? Oh, I have to go and work for you and assist you and robbing me so I can earn the currency to pay you the tax that you're robbing me for. That's one way. Another way, we look at um, Christopher Columbus, the rapist, the murderer. When he came to the Americas, he forced the natives to pay a tax, right? Because he was so concerned. He said, there's gold here. There, There has to be gold. So what he would do is he says, hey, every three months, you have to bring me a sack of gold. When you bring me this sack of gold, I'll give you a token that says that your debt to the crown has been paid. But you have to keep getting this token renewed, meaning you have to keep paying the tax, have to keep bringing the gold. And if you don't bring me the gold, I'm going to cut your nose off or cut your hands off and send you back to your people. Another example of a tax, Leopold in the Congo. You have to pay me a tax. I want the tax in rubber. If you can't pay me the tax, I'm going to cut your hands off in the hands of your children. So taxation just because you pay taxes to an entity, it doesn't mean that you're a part of that entity. Dudes on the streets pay taxes all the time. You understand what I'm saying? So we got to understand that, no, it doesn't mean that we are a part of this nation just because this nation forces us to be. The question is, do you have a choice? If you made a million dollars today, do you have a choice to not? No, you don't have a choice because you're conquered, you're dominated. If you decide that you're not going to pay taxes on that million dollars you made, they're going to come get you and put you in jail. Why? Because they have the power. It don't mean that you are part of the nation. It just means that you're a conquered people. Now, now, now that you break that aspect, down, right? That's one aspect. Wait, hold on. I just wanted to ask them. Now okay. that you kind of broke that down, does that also go for for the social contract, like that whole deal? Is that in that fold, or is it separate? 
Yeah, black people don't have a social contract with America. Um, and I would, you know, I would question the sanity of any black person who would trust the contract. Have you have you seen the history of treaties that Europeans have signed with non-white people? Absolutely. They have they have never honored any treaty they've ever signed. So I would question our sanity if we absolutely believe we have a contract. If you want to look for a contract, I would I would encourage black people to go back to the 19th century and look up this pop popular stanza that white people used to sing after slavery. The name of the song was called Who Will Care for Niggers Now? Go find it because that is the pol they they they, they read the, read the lyrics of that song. That's the only contract we got with America. And so we understand that we're going to keep doing busy work. We're going to keep doing plantation work until they no longer need us. All right, them plantation days is over, brother. And I just want to thank you um, for bringing your political education to this forum. Um, in this documentary, for those that, that are going to be privy to see it, the brother is actually out there, man, holding political classes on the street corners. In, in, in the city of Philadelphia, but you ain't gotta be in Philadelphia to see this brother. You can see him on the big screen. I want you to tell everybody where they can get this documentary at, where they can screen it at, where they can get the DVD at. And a lot of people's gonna have questions for you because you said we don't have to pay no more taxes. They don't wanna pay taxes. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I, I didn't say, listen, the, the question, the question of domination, brother, is always a, a question of power, power relations between people. Right now, we are maintained in a powerless position. So mm -hmm. to change the dynamic, it requires power. Power requires organization and structure. That's why we talk about black power. We're talking about organizing that black power in the community so that we can say, I ain't paying you shit. Mm -hmm. we that right now as individuals because like as an individual you know how that go like you can break each finger individually but if we did and we got some of this behind it then we can say i ain't paying you shit yeah no taxation without representation you know yeah and then another thing um it's it's almost like Nah, I'm not even gonna say that. I'll save that for another time man I, that might, listen, that listen, might I'm, I'm, i appreciate y'all having me on this was I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I'm always willing to come back. Um, we're looking to come to a live screening in Atlanta on the 24th of January, which is a Sunday. We're working out the details right now, um, but when I have them, I'll send them to you. If anybody wants to access the documentary, it's Vimeo On Demand, um, I think backslash un-American. Um, if you, I can send you the link, uh, Brother Raheem, if you put, yeah, link, I put it. I put it in the um, description. Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll make sure you get the link. But yeah, I, I definitely appreciate y'all having me. this. Was a, and sister Marcy, I really appreciate your questions. This was a thank you. All right, social media. You gotta give out the social media. Omawale Africa, just like it's spelled on the screen. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Omawale Africa. I'm most active on Twitter, um, but you can you know connect with me on any of those platforms. Awesome. Yeah, I don't know what it is. It just I'm hearing it static. Can you say your social media one more time? Yes, sir. It's Omawale Africa, just, just like like it's spelled on the screen, Omawale Africa, at Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. All right, man. I, I definitely appreciate you, brother, man. Uh, this definitely was Political Education 101. Yeah, we need it. Yeah, we, we need it. Well, Big time. Uh, questions coming in. People said solid talk. Uh, nice appeal to emotion. Um, I like somebody said they like to debate this guy. Oh, okay. <laughs> What's going on, man? Race. Oh, this guy, this gotta be one of those. Uh, yeah, this is a troll. A troll. <laughs> he they said, stay on a lot. Race grifters are my favorite. Come on now. So, peace and power, black family. This is a conclusion, man, of another dope interview on Necessary Blackness podcast. This is the first time we had this brother on. This is definitely not going to be the last because uh, you know, you know when we're gonna get you on. <laughs> we're gonna get you on um, on the hundred and one day. I'm here being in office. I'm keeping count. I'm keeping record. <laughs> you know they always say. Uh, they always go back and look and see if he made his campaign promise. He make us no promise. No, no. Well, well, 
you know, he did say he wanted to, um, you know, bring the employment rate down, uh, minimum wage, uh, the student loan. You know, he, he, the stuff that he said, he didn't make us no promise. The stuff he said he was going to do for the American people. We're going well, to- we, we not American. Huh? We we un-American. Yeah, you, you yeah. He ain't saying you're doing that for us. Right, you're right. But, but Marcy Lee, she has a, what was the hashtag you had about the 100 days? What's that? Remember you had the hashtag about the 100 days. What was that? Oh, shoot. I forgot. <laughs> but brother, we definitely going to bring you back on the 101 day. And, I'll be here. Um, we want you to educate the people, man. I, I definitely appreciate it. And like I said, man, throw some stuff. You know, I, I consider myself uh, politi politically astute and up on what's going on. And, and, I, and I consider myself well-read. And I'm like, where that brother from that at? I never heard of that. And then when you playing the actual speech of it and you giving the uh, the text, I'm like, wow. You know, I'm right. You know, I know, I ain't trying to cut you off right here, but I heard him say that he had some other interviews. So I hope we're not cutting into that time. No, y'all good. This is my last okay. one. This is my last Go one for the day. Yeah, yeah. So when I, I'm just like, oh, wow. You know, why nobody ever said nothing about this? You know what I mean? Because everything that you was breaking down, you know, from 50 years ago is in context with today. You know, the same people that will quote W.E. Du Bois on, on black history won't be the ones to say, well, he did say not to vote. You know what I mean? And it's just like, wow, I didn't even know that about him. But you know, oh, yeah, because that was something that you had said too. You was like, the ancestors didn't die for us to vote, they died for our freedom. So yeah. whether that's the freedom to vote, the freedom not to vote, that's what it was about. So I thought that was it was a lot of little stuff in there that was pretty dope. Yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So I am going to drop the uh, link to get that documentary. Make sure y'all go out and support. And brother, um, if you here in Atlanta, I'm going to do everything within my power to come out. But I ain't going to lie to you, brother. I've been uh, hiding from COVID, man. So, I don't blame you, bro. It's, 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 I was it, 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 looking at Atlanta like, these black people down, down here don't think it's COVID. Like, they don't even know. Wearing my mask. I'm looking at people like, what's going on? It's, it's crazy down here. Yeah, Atlanta is a whole different beast. So depends on how you got it set up. If you can have me like in a little booth or something <laughs> and, and I can see it. You know, I already seen the documentary. So I might just come out, you know, but. Show it got to be for social distancing. Maybe some of these um, voters that voted for Biden, they'll be the first to go get the vaccine. And then we can <laughs> get the effect of that. So, yeah, let me ask you about that, brother. Just off of the political, um, you know, we're going to talk about something else. What do you think about this vaccine? I'm, I'm not taking it. Oh, I'm not taking it. Neither. What do you think about Obama and Clinton and Bush talking about they're going to be the first ones to get it publicly? I mean... Obama is, is a globalist, meaning meaning that he carries water for you know globalist initiatives. We saw when uh, when um, Biden won the um, election, Bill Gates was the first person to tweet, "I can't wait, you know, to work with the uh, you know the Gates administration over over these next uh, uh, you know four years or whatever." Um, and if we look at you know his cabinet that he's putting together, it's a cabinet of you know bankers, globalists, war hawks. Um, you know, somebody sent me an article about, uh, you know, Obama's eugenics doctor. There was an article that was written um, in, uh, in the Wall Street Journal, maybe like back in 2008, about a, a doctor that Obama had on his um, staff who was, uh, you know, advocating for, you know, making decisions in terms of who gets help, you know, in terms of, you know, if there's a limited supply of medical, you know, um, attention, then who should get it? Meaning making decisions in terms of who dies, right? So um, this dude who's a eugenicist is now on, um, on on Biden's administration. So the thing that I liked about Trump, and there's not much to like about him, but I think that there was some benefit to his nationalist, his nationalism, and that it did slow down somewhat of the tide of... Uh, globalism, which is going to be horrible for all people. 
um, you know, on the planet. You know what I mean? So I think that with Biden and Harris back in, people are going to be politically comfortable again. You know, they can go back to sleep while the empire does what the empire does and policies roll out that are detrimental to human life. You know what I was saying? I was saying that they are not going to physically force individuals to take this vaccine because they don't have to. No, this is what they're going to do. In order for you to work in the healthcare industry, you're going to have to have a vaccine. In order for you to get on the plane, you're going to have to have a vaccine. In order for you to um go to like stadiums or, or different places, like there's an article out. It's like, it's almost like a passport. It's, it's going to be people freedom card to go places where you're going to have to show that saying that you have a vaccine. Yeah, they, they call there's, it social currency. But the thing is, did you guys see about a week ago that general who was basically making it seem like it was going to be a military effort and that everybody was going to be able to um, need to have it within 24 hours? You know, I feel like this is something different. Like we're assuming that they're going to, you know, ask us if we want to take it or not. And we're thinking that it's going to be this social currency type of situation. But what if it's not? Yeah, I mean, we don't know. We don't have the power to determine you know, how it will be. What we do know is that they are forcing this thing on um, black people, meaning like uh, Cuomo in New York comes out and says that black people suffered the most from COVID. So they should be given the vaccine first because they've suffered the most. And I said, no, I grew up in the church to tell me that the last shall be first. So if we if we suffered the most, then we'll hold off. We'll be last on the vaccines since we took the most L's from the COVID. Y'all go ahead. Y'all no, test it. leadership. Let leadership get it first. All they, y'all get they, it first. They're trying to get populations like, you know, like Detroit, Philly, Atlanta. You know, there was already an HP. There's been two HBCU presidents that signed on for the trials. You know what I mean? So they're trying to get the black population to kind of like to sign on and be you know the vanguard of uh of the i don't let's let's we probably shouldn't talk to i don't want them to take your video down bro we probably okay, shouldn't. You know. yeah, yeah, yeah. they definitely do be uh flagging videos when you be talking about that covid thing yeah but you you know what's crazy is that when it comes to health disparity when it comes to the uh criminal justice system you know we arrested at a disproportionate rate of everything else but now all of a sudden people are dying, but you want you you want to help black people before you help anybody else. Come on, man. The law of nature is self-savior. Mm -hmm. So the people, the ruling class in power is going to be the first to want to have this vaccine. Uh, mind you, China, where this thing, the, the epicenter was in China. Yeah. China doesn't have a vaccine requirement. Yeah. In fact, there was a documentary um, about uh, um, the way that China handled it versus the way America handled it, and apparently um, it's being censored on Amazon. So you can't even you can't even purchase the documentary uh, wow. on, on Amazon because the Chinese didn't force their people to be, be vaccinated. Yeah. So they, they solved it with no vaccination. So why are they now saying that Americans, you know, are required to be vaccinated? And they a dictatorship country. And they're not even making their people take it by force. And they have mm -hmm. the power to do that because China don't play. You know, but brother, we've been going on over an hour and we can keep going. But we're going to end this because they probably going to end it themselves. I think they've been messing with our live stream too, man. But I, I appreciate you, brother. And, and you you get ready to get up out of here. You, you still in Atlanta? Yeah, yeah, my flight leaves tomorrow morning at eight, so I'm I'm right by the airport though, so I'm like I'm like ten minutes away from the airport. Right, man. Make sure you know safe travel, man, and um text me, man, as soon as you touch down. And like I said, man, we'll have you back on here, man. Peace. Appreciate and it, family, man. I'm out of here. Salute to the general.